I'm Brock Gordon, and I'm an art teacher at Fusion Academy. And I work with a group of fantastic teachers. This summer, I'm catching up with them on their ideas on education. This is Summer League. Let me tell you a bit about our school. Fusion Academy is a one-to-one accredited high school and middle school. That means that all of our classes have one student and one teacher. We have all types of students, but they are all here for the engaged learning that comes with the one-to-one classroom. We have about 65 full-time students and max out at about 100. We are teacher mentors who customize each class for that particular student. It's unlike most other teaching experiences out there. Part one is going to be an interview with my guest, Emily Shearer, and I'm going to learn a little bit about her past experience and her ideas on education. In part two, we're gonna have a conversation about the psychology of language. I'm interviewing a different teacher every week this summer. We're all gonna select different topics to talk about. First up is my interview with Emily Shearer. She's a poet and she teaches French here at Fusion Academy in the Woodlands. I've got Emily Shearer here and she's our French teacher here at uh, Fusion, the Woodlands, but you also teach English and you also teach life skills. Correct. And what else? So far, that's what so it's far, that's been. It. Cool. Yes. Great. Well, welcome, Emily. Thank you for having um, me. Bonjour. How long have you been a teacher here? I started two weeks after the official start of the semester last September. Okay, cool. It took me a while to realize that there was no real start or finish in Fusion. Right. Everything rolls. Yes. But I, I learned to roll with it. Yeah. So I've been here since mid-September. So you've been here about nine months. That's right. Something like that. Cool. Uh, and where do you come from? Uh, literally, I came from Prague, the Czech Republic. Really? Uh, we had we we had moved here, uh, moved to the woodlands about two years ago, and I was still you know learning my way around the neighborhood, getting my kids settled. Um, we had been in Prague for three years. Uh, way back before that, I came from the mountains of Western North Carolina. Cool. Uh, and I did some teaching in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, stopped teaching to raise kids in in and out of Texas and Northern Virginia. I was in grad school in Northern Virginia for a while before we moved over to Prague. So you're a fellow North Carolinian. Go Heels. That's right. Go Heels. We can tell you no one around here really cares about college basketball in a meaningful way. So when March Madness is going on, there's really nobody else interested in uh, the Tar Heels, which is, it's hard. But anyway, I'm glad you're here, at least. I'm happy you know, to be here. Some of a, uh, another North Carolinian. Um, so what was your first job? My very first job was a gopher on Main Street, Hendersonville, North Carolina. So what's a gopher do? You go for this and you go for that. (laughs) (laughs) My dad was a small town attorney. He had one job in one office his entire career on Main Street. 
He knew everybody up and down the street, and he knew a colleague who was looking for someone to deliver papers, uh, go pick up lunch, and run back and forth to the bank, um, doing doing his his gophering. I watered his geraniums, walked his dogs once in a while. <laughs> it's a little after school and summer job to pick up some pocket money. Neat. Yeah. So, uh, is anybody in your family a teacher? Yes. Who was? My mother was a teacher. Okay. Uh, she was a lifelong teacher. She uh, stopped teaching to raise my brother and myself. We were 17 months apart, so we were quite a handful. Uh, and then she went back to work, um, fourth, fifth, and sixth grades. And she did some specialization, some special ed education as well. Um, so what kind of experiences did you have um, that maybe led you to teaching? And did you ever think that you would yourself actually be a teacher? There was no direct path between my um, education and becoming a teacher. I did not study early childhood education or pedagogy of any sense. But I did do a major in French. And uh, one of the first paid jobs, career type jobs, was using my French um, professionally in a school. I didn't teach, but it was a school down in Houston called the Audi International School. And they ran a program. The French school system is very different from the American school system. Um, And since there were so many expat kids coming through Houston, coming from the French system, they set up a French system within an American private school that so, ran parallel. So everybody speaks French. Not necessarily. Okay. Uh, there were two. There were two schools within one building. One running as a French school with the French grading system, all hiring French um, citizens as their teachers who had their French teaching certificates, and I worked uh, with them to get all of their paperwork settled and communicate with the uh, parents and do the grading. And then I was also administrative on the American private school side. Um, So doing that gave me a little bit of experience being around the school system, um, but not in the classroom. Um, And I also had some teaching experience on closed circuit satellite TV which I did because they were hiring a French speaker to teach French. Right. So tell us about that. That was was a hoot, Brock. (laughs) That was a blast. At the time, that was in the early 90s, mid 90s. uh, The company was a subsidiary of Viacom. And they were pretty cutting edge when you think about um, receiving um, on-demand Education, you know, nowadays you can get, you can do a Zoom class with Fusion, for example. This was happening before any of that streaming or subscribe to your channel and get your education classes. Uh, it was, uh, we went into bona fide TV studios with green screens and camera operators and sound operators and setting up the studio. Um, And so we would go in and deliver our classes and they would drop the Champs-Élysées on the green screen in the background. And we would deliver our lessons as if we were walking down the Champs-Élysées pretending like we were in Paris or uh, getting to do some, deliver a lesson about French foods 
quote unquote from a French restaurant. Now I had gotten to go to France and do that pre-filming. So on the company, I got to travel to French speaking Canada and to Paris, uh, do a lot of filming where we filmed scenes of the Champs-Élysées. We filmed scenes from the inside of French restaurants, from the kitchens of French restaurants and interviewing chefs and doing cooking lessons. And then I went back to the studio um, developed these classes, delivered them as if I was interviewing the chef, had an earpiece in my ear, could speak directly to the camera, and the kids in the school classrooms all around the country could go to a landline phone, speak into the phone. I could hear them in my earpiece and speak back to the camera. Wow. Wow. That is bizarre. It is bizarre <laughs> that all of that was happening in 1994. Uh, and now, you know, here we are doing the same things, with the camera in our own. What was your feeling about that? Like, uh, like you didn't know exactly what was going to happen day to day? No, yes and no. Um, the lessons were about 20 minutes and they were scripted and they were pretty well uh, planned out minute to minute because I was delivering the entire class in French and none of the studio crew spoke French. So we had to have rehearsals so that they would know when to cut to video, when to turn the sound up, when to lay in the uh, graphics that I had yeah. designed. Um, but we had a schedule just like we have at Fusion when our scheduler is laying out who goes to class at 1030. Uh, we had a schedule of when the, I would be delivering a class about the French monetary system or when I would be delivering a class about um, conjugating French verbs. And it was just like we used to use an old TV guide. Teachers who subscribed to our classes would look at the guide, figure out what classes were going to be delivered at what time during the week and then turn on their televisions in their classroom to tune us in to watch our programming. That's wild. It was wild. <laughs> and and I didn't really realize at the time how revolutionary it was. Uh, I don't think anybody else in the country was doing anything like that then. And now, you know, now it's just commonplace to us to think about we open up our laptop and we can yeah. Get in a classroom, in a virtual classroom with a few keystrokes. Yeah. Let's fast forward a little bit to um, you as a teacher now. Um, who do you model your teaching or coaching style on? Yes, Dean Smith. <laughs> Good answer. Great answer. <laughs> Uh, for all of you who, all of those listeners out there who don't know who Dean Smith is, look him up. Yeah, read <laughs> read the book. I read his book. Have you? Uh, seen I have book? not. I, I have it on my bookshelf. I can't remember the name of it either. Yeah. I haven't read it, but my husband, his religion is Carolina okay, basketball. Good. So there's well, your good. hint, Carolina yeah. basketball. Dean Smith. <laughs> um, that's a great question, and I gave it a lot of thought. And I'm sorry to say I don't have an answer for that. My, my, my first answer would be my mom because she was not only a lifelong classroom teacher, she was a great, just a great person, very positive, very encouraging, good listener. Um, and I think that that's, those three things are key in the classroom, especially in a fusion classroom, in any classroom. Um, I did have my, my favorite teacher in high school was somebody who um, 
bucked trends a little bit, okay. ruffled feathers a little bit, uh, was not afraid to speak his mind, and encouraged us to speak ours. And I think that for the kids, for the ages that we teach, that's so important. Because I think that in this day and age, kids, they feel that they have a platform because they can have their own YouTube channel. They can create their own podcast like we're doing right now. Um, But I think it's hard for them to really feel like they're being listened to. And I wonder if a lot of times they're creating these things because there's that void there that they're Mm -hmm. not really being listened to. So they're just looking for whatever audience might be out there. Um, So I really like to create space and hold space to let the kids know that they're being listened to. Yeah. I think that when you're a kid, sometimes you think that there's one way to do things. There's a right way to do things. And in some senses, there is a right way to do things as opposed to like, if you're using a saw, there's a right way to use a saw. <laughs> there's a wrong way to use a saw. Yeah. But I think having having space with adults where they see us um, using all these different kinds of styles and methods and personalities and um, making mistakes is really important. I think there's a big... They're scared to fail, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I think that's that YouTube uh, channel where they're like, "Hey guys," uh, you know, and they don't know who guys are, yeah. who exactly that is. But there's this entity, this the internet, that is willing to pay attention to them, and um, that can prove to be really powerful in mm-hmm. some instances, and really reinforcing in their fear of doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. Because Um, they're not getting any feedback. Usually they're not getting any meaningful feedback if they do get feedback. Well, yeah, you're right. They do get the feedback in the comments, but they're not, would you say there's no recourse? If they're, if they're not, if they're, if there's no right or wrong way to do it, nobody can tell them they're doing it wrong, which I think is a, a really nice place to be in fusion that there is no wrong way to learn. I think you and I teach subjective courses because language and expression. And the French language, though, can be very unforgiving. Right. So there are wrong ways to put endings on your conjugated verbs. But there's no wrong way to learn that. Right. One of the best times that I had with a student all year was she's, she was very physical. She was an athlete. She got up every morning and used that physical energy and she wanted to move and she wanted to change the shape of her body in her chair and she wanted to. Um, so we created a game where we left the classroom, we went out in the hallway and we played and we were physical and we were learning and that just helped her find a way to use that energy and to lock in that learning. Yeah. So the question behind the question of who do you model your teaching on is how did you adapt for um, kids who are, who are uh, way different in their learning style than you are? Mm. I think in this model, in this fusion model, 
you adapt your teaching style to a student's learning style quite quickly, or it's like it's like time is sped up because you are one-on-one in a room or walking around with that kid. It's like it's like time is crystallized, or you're seeing that kid in through a magnifying glass. And so whereas maybe in a typical in a traditional setting, it may take a teacher two or three weeks to figure out, I'm hitting my head against the wall with this, this isn't working. It's gonna take you two or three class sessions or maybe even 20 or 30 minutes to figure out that ain't working. Right. And you, you just have to switch that up, but it makes the experience a lot more um, rewarding for you as well as for the kid. You know, that's huge in that classroom when you have the victories with the kid, when the, you have those light bulb moments. Right. And it's when you can adapt to the kid, to the student's learning style because you're in this greenhouse. Right. You're in a greenhouse and you see the flowers starting to bud real fast because you're you're fertilizing yeah. them to extend that metaphor. There's a lot more care going on. There's a lot more individual attention and you can't hide behind anything and neither can your student. And they will call you on it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, I had a student the other day who said, uh, can you not chew with your, oh. chew gum can you close Snap. your mouth a little more when you're <laughs> chewing your gum? And you're definitely on that level playing field. That's not where the teacher is up here mm-hmm. and the student is down there. Like it's, um, you're very capable of being called out on yep. something. <laughs> and really man, funny. is that different from my educational experience? That so, is so different. What's the main difference between your um, experience in school and the way you teach now? Um, I would say the lines are very blurred in the, in the way that we teach here at Fusion and the way that I teach. And, and I think that we all do. Um, I think that that hierarchy that you knew in, uh, you know, that I certainly knew in public school in Western North Carolina, would you ever call a teacher by their first name? No, no. way. Would you ever tell your teacher to close their mouth when they're smacking their gum? No. No. <laughs> I mean, remember you had to raise your hand to go to the bathroom. You had right. to, Yeah, it was just very, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It was just very, just traditional, yes ma'am, no sir, do what you're told, read the assignment, get the points off if you don't read the assignment. And, you know, they wanted to foster open communication. Let me know if you have any questions. But you probably didn't even raise your hand if you had questions. You just scrambled and figured it out and got help from your friends. And Because some people in that classroom knew what was going on. And if you didn't, you just made it look like you really did. That's right. And it's very easy to kind of blend into the sea of people who know what they're doing. That's right. And I that you know that's typical adolescence. I have teenagers at home. And so I'm really interested in um, how they interact, how they interact with each other, how they interact with me, how they see me, 
um, what that relationship is. And they call me by my first name. You know, I never called my friends, parents by their first names no. growing up. No. So it's also a generational thing, not just a fusion classroom thing. Besides that particular model that we foster here at Fusion with the fostering those relationships, allowing those lines to be blurred even more so than they would be at a traditional school now, that we can adapt to the uh, the kids' learning styles. You know, we're not governed by some state-mandated curriculum. Um, so we can slow down or speed up or skip over or change it up to individualize the the pacing. You know, you can't do that. I we, They couldn't do that for us in a standard school. They couldn't do that for me growing up. I sucked at math. Yeah. I was terrible in maths. I, for whatever reason, my brain could comprehend the languages. And here I am teaching languages. But I didn't have anybody who could slow it down, take their time, understand how I learned um, in my maths and sciences classes. If you were lucky and you were struggling in a class, a teacher might take time out to slow you down to say, hey, let's go over the, or let me help, let me see you after class mm -hmm. and let's go through this. Otherwise, you just kind of fail. You failed. And you, you floundered and yeah, or you, you failed. You yeah. get bad grades or you get yeah. a C because they don't have the time and energy to fail you or, you know, they're, <laughs> they somebody's telling you, you that they're not going <laughs> to, yeah. they are not allowed to fail you. You're teaching, you know, you, you have your core teaching style, your, your core personality, that doesn't change. But your, your approach, your lesson that you've designed, your, you know, one kid loved that game that I was talking about. I tried right. it with the other French student. Not so much. Yeah. So you figure that out real fast, too. Okay, we're not playing that game. And what day. you think is going to work, you know for sure is going to work with the kid, doesn't. Yeah. Because you present it, you know, really confidently, and it's just they're not having that kind of a day. Yeah. One of the classes that we teach here is uh, wellness and you have four students over the course of four hours. And it's all the same subject matter. You have the same lesson plan for all four of them. And all it's almost the most exhausting class to me because you go in with the same game plan four times and you never know if it's gonna work or not. Mm -hmm. And usually the times, it's almost the opposite of what you would expect. Oh, yeah. Some students who really exceed, uh, who really do well in academic settings and are forced to kind of step into their own head, oh, is yeah. it's terrifying to them. And they really struggle. And I feel like some of our classes are, if you're struggling, you're doing it right. And yeah. they don't, they've never seen struggle before. Sure. So half of the reason why they're here is because it's not because they have some sort of uh, learning disability or something like that. It's that um, we offer uh, the other side of whatever it is they have. And that's a really interesting class for me. So let me turn it around for a second and interview you for a second. Okay. What have you learned in those instances when 
you completely have to change your game plan? What have you learned about yourself and how to change your teaching when it just does what you thought might work just doesn't work? My game plan is improvise and if it's not real improvisation, make it look like improvisation <laughs> uh-huh. and be willing to throw away the lesson and ditch the activity and make it seem like you're making choices on the fly, even if you're not. So you have a, a plan B and a plan C. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, but I might come up with the, yeah, those plans are predetermined, uh-huh. but a lot of the times I might present a project to a student, but in front of them on the piece of paper say, you know what, now that I'm looking at this, I don't want to do that. I want to, you know, based on kind of, sh- uh, based on uh, your interests or your, your, what you did on this other project, I think we ought to do this instead uh-huh. and kind of do it in front of them and say like, it's okay to change, to be in the process. Nice. And the process of it is that we're here to like learn something. I'm not here to teach you how to use Photoshop step by step. I'm here to teach you how to think like a designer, mm-hmm. like ask the important questions and get to the heart of what it is because you can learn anything on YouTube. Um, but the important part is the process of like, let's get started and let's almost um, kind of make it up as we go along. I love that. I think that's one of the most valuable lessons that can be taught outside of book learning is to teach a kid not only how to do that for themselves, how to problem solve on in all areas, but that adults uh-huh. <laughs> are constantly doing that too. Yes. Yes. Once you realize that nobody knows what they're doing, <laughs> yes. it's so freeing. <laughs> yes. I'll ask you one more question before we break and um, then we'll come back with part two. But um, I just want to uh, ask, what is the main difference between the work you did as a researcher or whatever you studied um, to what you do as a teacher? So I'll give you an example. Yes, please. Um, I'm struggling with the question. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's so complicated. It's, question. it's complicated. It's the question from the mind of an artist. So here's here's the underlying thing with art, mm-hmm. for example, is that you teach the rules of design, um, like balance and movement and that kind of thing. Um, so you have these rules, quote unquote, that make good design. Mm-hmm. Um, they make things like the Pantheon, uh, balance, um, you know, that kind of thing. To make a good design though usually involves subverting those rules. Mm-hmm. So making art, I think of as like a way of breaking the rules usually to make something interesting. And that's what makes it kind of art. Okay, I'm um, with you. So to, to be a good teacher, I have in a lesson in design, I have to say like, these are the principles of design, balance. Let's make something that's really balanced. When as an artist, I'm kind of like, I'm continuously saying, never make anything balanced. <laughs> okay. That's okay. a really boring, con- you know. Okay. The way I gotcha. that you change as a teacher, as a way, as opposed to as a writer or a 
you know, your writing. When I'm teaching French, like I mentioned earlier, there are rights and wrongs. There is black and white. If you don't conjugate the verb, you're not speaking the language. That's, I'm sorry, student, but that is the wrong answer. Right. Then you have to figure out there's slang, there's uh, mixed native speaking, there's um, there's flow, there's psychology of language, which is something that we're going to talk about after the break. And so I would find myself getting really frustrated. Yeah, you can't break those rules of conjugation. If you say the old lady, it means the old lady. If you say the lady old, mm-hmm. imagine the, the order is switched. It completely creates a different meaning. It means the lady that you knew before. Oh, uh-huh. okay. So I'm, I'm simplifying it. But, right. And so kids were always asking me, well, why can't you do this? Well, why can't I do that with another word? And then I think about poetry and I think about creative writing and I look at French poetry and I look at English poetry and I go, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. You learn the rules and then you break the rules. And that's what makes language alive and colorful and evolving and so i i did have to get out of my i have to get out of my own mindset um teaching any language whether it's teaching uh, an english class creative writing why reading a work of literature why does this sentence work and sound beautiful and this one doesn't why, when we try to write that ourselves, does that work? Or this this sounds better, or that's jarring. And it all just becomes very nebulous and ruleless. Mm-hmm. And and that makes me a little uncomfortable sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like teaching that kind of reinforces the rules for you and makes it clear. Like if you're writing that poem about the lady old does it make you more aware of the kind of process for of, sure you know thinking about oh this is why i have this is why it's important or this is why it's interesting for sure for me to write it this way and this is why um you have to why language is precise and imprecise and changing and open to interpretation all at the same time. Right. Um, and so I go back to my textbooks and I figure out exactly the right way to do it and exactly what would happen if we changed that word order and am I really saying what I mean to be saying and well, wait a minute, maybe I'm breaking up in some whole new message and uh, yeah. My favorite thing um, in a drawing one class and like a, you know, you got usually 18 year olds coming into drawing one um, who may or may not have ever put a pencil to paper to make an image before. Um, and you're supposed to be teaching them the fundamentals of drawing is that you have to tell them this drawing uh, does not meet the expectation that we set. It does not do the fundamental things of drawing. But can you please sell it to me? Because it's so <laughs> it's interesting fantastic. that you made this yes. bizarre drawing. Yes, yes. It's funny. Um, when we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, coming into teaching, I kind of wanted to mention, but kind of thought maybe I won't bring it up. I used to teach preschool movement. 
And I did not want to say that anything like teaching fusion students is like teaching preschoolers. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's exactly what you just said. Teaching preschool movement. These kids don't know how to use their bodies yet. And you're getting to see them learn to jump or learn how to do simple sign language with a song or learn how to catch a beanbag. And they're doing kooky manga things and running all around the place amok and standing on their head. And it's so much fun to watch. And it's so fresh and naive and innocent and hilarious and goofy. And that's what we're all learning. You know, we're all these new learners. So I think we need to introduce or suggest movement as a serious course for our high schoolers here. I think that movement, that's a great course. I <laughs> would right. love to co-teach right. that one. Okay, let's do it. That's great. So we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back with part two, where uh, Emily and I are going to discuss learning new languages. back with part two with Emily Shearer. Can you tell me what you're thinking? I was thinking about talking about, uh, I, I think I think you worded it better than I did. I think you said the psychology of learning a new language. Okay. So the, the thinking behind it, the, the driving factor behind wanting to learn a new language, and also not just a new language being a, a linguistic set beyond your own. I'm also talking about learning um, a language in a relationship versus learning a language, an intergenerational language, intercultural language, not just English versus French versus German versus Mandarin. Learning a language in a relationship is a very important language (laughs) to learn. Very important. I haven't nailed it yet. (laughs) None of us have. (laughs) Don't worry, none of us have. So yeah, what what's the different? What's that? Uh, what is the learning that goes on when you're learning to speak in a relationship like that, or any kind oh of relationship? Oh my lord! As if I were an expert. Uh, <laughs> I did share with you. I've been married for 24 years, uh-huh. but we're still learning each other's languages. Right. I don't know if you've heard the theory of love languages. Right. There's yes. a book out. It's a big topic, and people know way more about it than I do. I only know I know that there are five love languages. So what's the gist of that? The gist that of idea? it, let me see if I can name the five. Um, gifts, like physically giving a gift, a diamond necklace or whatever. Gifts of time and service. Um, uh, affirmation. Words um, of affirmation. Words of affirmation. That's yep. what I was looking for because that's mine. Yeah. <laughs> isn't that funny? Because as a linguist I can, I can and as a, yeah. a writer and expressive person, my love language is words of affirmation. My husband's is um, time and service. Yes, so that's it's me. okay. Yeah. So it is important for one in a in a uh, dual relationship 
not only you got to know your own, you have to know what the other person's is and speak the other person's. You can't just sit around waiting for that person to speak yours. That's so true. Yeah. That's so true. I actually subbed a class the other day where it was, I think, life skills. And one of the things that we were, I was subbing, the content was um, different ways of communicating. One of the modes of communicating was, um, they mentioned it was process talking. Talking process, yeah, like talking um, continuously as a way of processing information. Ah, okay. Like interpreting the world and remarking on it as you do it, as opposed to those who take in a lot of information, think carefully about um, what they're going to say and how they're going to say it. And I thought, wow, yeah, that's like, (laughs) that is so many relationships uh, kind of boiled down to like two opposing types and how, you know, understanding that that's how that other person speaks is just so, it was uh, eye-opening to it me. Is. It it's like, a revelation, oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, I, and we have to remember, when I talk about relationships, of course I'm talking about your partner in, in life, but also, you know, your Uber driver has a different language, a, a different way of, verbally processing the world. You're yes. the, the person at Trader Joe's that checks you out. The person, the parent of this of the fusion student that you have to communicate with. Right. So it's always important to take into consideration that what you're saying may be falling on deaf ears, not because they're trying to be difficult or they're trying to or they're 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 shutting you off or they're disagreeing with you or judging you. They just don't speak that language. Right. And um, to take that into the classroom, it's it's an important in early language acquisition in in a foreign language. I'm not talking about children. Um, well, I suppose it applies to kids too. Find any way to say what you're trying to say. It's not important to find exactly the right word for yellow sundress. Right. It's you, if it's if it's really important to communicate the idea of yellow sundress, we can get there. We can say something that you wear that is not purple or orange or red right. or blue. I mean, there's a way to come around, go, going all the way around the barn to get right. through the back door, but still say it. And that voyage it seems kind of it, it flavors whatever you're saying mm-hmm. in a certain kind of way, and that's the kind of beauty of language is the like flavoring. Uh, or seasoning, like the way that it is said. Yes. Right. And what you have, what you have in your language cap that enables you to finally get to express the yellow sundress. Um, I've lived in a couple different countries, and um, at one point in my life, I would say I, I'm still fluent in French. I was uh, semi-fluent in Italian. Um, beginner check and I can get by in Spanish. Um, Everywhere I've lived or traveled or made friends with folks around the world coming from myriad different language backgrounds is they'll tell you formally and they'll tell you informally, just try it. Anybody of any other language wants to communicate with you. They want to hear what you have to say and they're not going to criticize you, laugh at you, think that you're stomping on their heritage if you say it 
air quotes wrong. Right. Just try it. Just right. find the way around the barn to express that idea that you're trying to get out. It doesn't have yeah. to be perfect. That's huge. That's <clears throat> I think there's a huge fear of being exposed as not knowing the right answer um, that holds back so many people from learning a new language. For sure, especially as adults. And kids especially don't have that. That's Adult why, language learners have now, that. So is that why it's so many people say that it's so much easier for kids to learn a new language than adults? Is it because the way their brains are wired as opposed to adults? Yes, and um, <laughs> the brain is plastic. Everybody's brain is plastic. But up until about the age of 12, the language acquisition brain is super plastic okay. and super expandable and not those wires aren't firmly um, plugged in yet. So that's why it's much easier to learn a new language before the age of 12. It's wow. doable after that age, but your brain pathways change. But if you keep your mind open mm-hmm. and, and you're not afraid to try, and you're not afraid to make mistakes, and you're not afraid to say it in a goofy, less than perfect way, then you can learn it. Right. So one of the interesting methods for language learning that I've experimented with in the past was Rosetta Stone. Mm-hmm. It was pretty popular um, before I went and studied abroad in Italy. And it's totally it was totally backwards from every other style of learning a language that I'd tried in the past because it's, it's fluent language from the get-go. Mm-hmm. They just show a, it's a very visual learning style. It's like a picture of an apple and you have all these choices and you just start guessing what it is. Okay. And they never sit down and say, apple is manzana <laughs> uh, or what in an Italian, I can't remember. Um, they just start speaking Italian and you have to kind of make these abstract connections between what's being said and what's being shown. And, um, I often use that example in an art class to say um, it's not important yet that you know exactly what the rules are, even in the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. more important for you to feel confident in just making marks and drawing something and responding to what you've drawn and um, responding to what I do mm-hmm. and what we do together. I think collaborative drawing is really a way of speaking a language of art that uses that same model. The idea is that you you just start speaking the language. Right, total immersion. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are two different schools of thought. A friend of mine, an older friend of mine, in his post-career, post-retirement, decided to travel to Nice enrolled himself in a six-week language course, got over there and got super frustrated because it was not the book learning he remembered. He lived in Belgium. He was able to go to the corner bakery and get his daily bread. Fine, you know, stumble through in uh, in French. Um, and so he went and he thought, oh, I got this. You know, I remember my college days. I remember the little bit of conversational French. And he told me the first day of class, they were told to read an article off the internet and highlight every word that they didn't understand. 
And we both shared a laugh because his whole paper was yellow. <laughs> the whole entire thing was highlighted. I mean, that's, you know, current. That's a, an article off the Internet. That's not some elementary primer that you're reading. Right. Um, I think there are pros and cons of both methods. But I think what it comes down to is how a toddler learns to speak their native language. It's all trial and error. It's all context. It's all sing song, nursery rhymes. And nobody's smacking their hand with a ruler if they say the word wrong. Right. Um, it's are, just reinforcement. Right. That's the And tactic. hearing it and it's 24-7. Yeah. And um, I, I have a younger sister who's quite a bit younger than me. And I remember when she was learning to talk, she learned I want cookie. Yeah. First person, construction, subject, verb, object. Right. Then she went through a phase where she would say, me want cookie. And it used to drive me crazy. And I asked my mom, why is she talking like that? It's so silly. It's driving me crazy. Nobody says, me want cookie. She doesn't hear people say that. Why is she saying that? And my mom explained that... Uh, it's because, again, it comes back to you have to learn the rules in order to break the rules. Mm -hmm. A toddler acquires language. They learn the rules. They learn the proper way of speaking through osmosis, you know, just through hearing it. And then they're like, wait a minute. This language is this amazing thing that I can rearrange words like playing with blocks. Mm -hmm. And I can let me try something else. They don't get the response they want. Slowly figure out that that's not the way it goes. Go back to the proper way. Well, that's kind of like where slang comes from, is one person says, what's up? And somebody else, whoever they said it to, said, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. And then they, then another third person listening said, oh, I kind of like what's up. Yeah. I'm going to use that. That sounds cool. And then all of a sudden, it becomes this normative like phrase that everybody uses, and nobody really knows why yeah you can't trace the origin right. or yeah i'm fascinated in that and i'm fascinated with urban dictionary uh-huh <laughs> i just i read it for sport yeah <laughs> and i and i it cracks me up when uh somebody kind of um does it for sport you know like they'll just create a, a you know a make believe a made up new slang obviously it's not going to stick because yeah. you're just having a it's just a lark you're just making something up and putting it on urban dictionary but then there's stuff on there that's that sticks there's stuff that sticks on the west coast that we don't use right. in texas or right. on the east coast there's stuff that may last for a day and it's just transient and you you know language is kind of kind of disposable and if it doesn't stick move on right um right yeah, I just, I just, and 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 then it's a working, you know, the dictionary, the, the language is alive and evolving. There's a there's an organization in France that is the the language government, the language police. Wow. There really is an institution, the language police. We kind of have that too. It's Webster's Dictionary. You know, it's constantly being You're rewritten. Right. There are new words that get in. There's the word of the year, and then there are words that aren't. Put in the dictionary anymore, um, but I think that Urban Dictionary, being a crowdsourced, uh, living, breathing part of the language, I, I love that it's it's all communal. 
Yeah. I love, I like that idea too, because it takes the power out of the hands of the few and puts it in the hands and of many. Absolutely. And that's what language is. That's right. what language is, like it or not. You know, you can't really govern it. Even right. if there are forces that try, you can't really govern it. Um, I love that. I, I often think of the symbols, like language is basically a set of symbols. Mm -hmm. um, like we have agreed or some people have made it so that banana is banana. Like this yellow fruit that we found is called banana. Mm -hmm. But we treat it in a way that is like these words were handed down by God or something that like, this is banana. <laughs> this is definitely not pencil. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's absurd. Like this is definitely it's banana. It's totally, it's when arbitrary. In actuality, it's all made up yeah. by a couple of people. Yeah. There's a great uh, Gary Young poem about his son learning language. And it reminds me of that moment that we all know from reading and learning the Helen Keller story where she touches the water right. and Annie, the teacher, signs water under the gushing water. And then she learns the sign for water. And then she knows that this thing, these symbols mean water. So this Gary Young poem talks about his son kind of all at once in a burst ha makes that flash has that water moment and realizes and he wants to go around and touch everything and it's like we were talking about when you can leave the classroom and walk around and touch things that right. are relevant so this little boy is touching leaf and dad says leaf and he's touching rock and dad says rock but the dad in the poem is watching this little boy and watching this language, not just the evolution of him acquiring language, but what language means, is it rock? Yeah. No, it's a word. Yeah. It's a word that symbolizes what a rock is. Right. But if we don't have that, we got nothing. Then we're silent and we're never communicating with right. each other. And I happen to believe that the point of human life is connection. So if we can't make a connection, we don't have language. Language is is a faulty tool, but it's right. all we have. Right. We haven't come up with anything better. Right. Except painting. Aha, <laughs> says the artist. <clears throat> so there's this painting you've probably seen before by Rene Magritte that is uh, the, it's called the, I don't remember the French name for it but it's uh, the translation is the treachery of images and it's a painting of a pipe mm -hmm. i know it well and it says uh you know painted on the canvas is this is not a pipe Ceci pas une pipe. and so thank you i'm <laughs> glad I'm, we're pulling out this reference where the french teacher voilà. is here um the idea is exactly what you're talking about is that uh, the image is not a word and it's not, you know, it's not a pipe, meaning it's a painting of a pipe, mm -hmm. a 2D uh, translation of this physical object that we also know. So painting um, also deals with symbols, but the whole point of painting is playing with the idea of how direct of a symbol it is to how abstract it is or how you know loose that interpretation is just like 
your the idea you're talking about earlier with the like the poetic use of um the lady old or something like that it's like playing with that interpretation of a symbol is like the whole point of the painting and it's not a pipe it's a painting of a pipe (laughs) yeah i remember i remember figuring that out about that painting and it was totally a whole helen keller moment like (laughs) the water rushing i get it i get it i get it um i think and any effort that we make at communication even though we know it's never there it's never a hundred percent right that we have to make the effort and and that's that's why I teach languages and it do, it doesn't matter I, I want students to understand if you're not gonna go to France and or become a French scholar or you know the the idea remains this is a really big world and the only way to shrink it is to be able to speak each other's languages whether it's a love language in a relationship or travel or understanding another culture or understanding ancient spiritual texts and why people behave they do what the way they do it's bridging that gap and struggling to bridge that gap. Learning a language is a struggle, but we do it because it, it, it enhances our brains in such a way to, to get other human beings. Like we gotta get each other. Right. Um, when I lived in the Czech Republic, it was very difficult. We were there for three years. The first year was really difficult. I romanticized it when we left. No, boo-hoo, I don't want to leave. I love this place so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I had to remember how difficult the first year was. What made all the difference between the first year and the second and third years was I began taking Czech lessons. And the whole thing just busted open. And being able to converse and understand history and understand landmarks and just scratching the surface of being able to understand why people do the way the things that they do was all about the language just getting it i imagine also just connecting with people on a on a more on a deeper level for sure is uh totally affects how what your experience is going to be like in that foreign country I think also understanding that language is part of the story, like that whatever that language is, is part of the story. Let's say you're going through this foreign country, you're a stranger in a strange land, and you don't quite speak the language. You still interact with people in this way that you're communicating Mm -hmm. with them visually, um, and you have some of the feelings of being a human without that my everything minus the language mm-hmm. it's it's just interesting to note those things versus um the the words and how they describe like actions so let's say like the word high five describes an action and when you say high five you kind of like you can picture it mm-hmm. but you don't get the sensation of high five like yeah. high-fiving involves feeling (laughs) you know connecting with somebody else in a celebration and you feel you know usually pretty good yeah um 
and the word describes that action, but it doesn't involve the feeling. And so I, I found it interesting when you're talking about being in a, a foreign country and not like before you took the Czech class, um, like you're still having these interactions with people and you might be able to like motion towards things or like, yeah, like ooh, express emotion, all those other things that language that you're not doing with the yeah, language. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of like every day you go through every day and you're having about a, a 60% experience. So you're getting your day, you're going through your day. Um, but I'm thinking about particular experiences in the backs of cabs. Um, we rode a lot of taxi cabs. It's a taxi cab country. Very few people own cars. Public transportation is huge. Uh, we lived on an area that was off of the tram line and it's just a lot of taxi cabs. We just used them. So I would get in a taxi cab and I could give my address. And the man would say, good evening. Where are you going? Give my address get there, thank you very much, money is exchanged, get out of the car. Right. You got from point A to point B, you got there safely. But when I began to speak their language, it just enriched the experience. I'm still getting from point A to point B. You know, I still got home safe, everybody's safe, everybody got where they needed to be, everybody's fine. But those 20 minutes in the back of the taxi cab, I was talking about God and talking about this one man's um, son was about to graduate from high school and he was the first child in the family to graduate from high school and how important that was. And that, you know, does it matter? Maybe not. I still got home that night. But I remember that guy and I remember his pride and I remember what that's like in 2014 to be, to have, be the father of the first child to graduate from high school. Like that explains a whole side of the country that I never would have known if I couldn't have had that conversation. Right. That's it just shows you how how deeply we are connected to languages and how important it is, um, how long we've been doing it in one way or another. Um, it's really um, it, when you you know don't have that, it makes you really rudely aware of how lonely it is to be without language. Right. It's sort of glum. Yeah. Like you can exist, you can mm -hmm. eat your tacos and Yeah. <laughs> but it's glum. It's a glum existence. Yeah. So I know I think I think music is that way. I think art is that way and definitely language. And I'm a big reader. I love I write poetry, but I actually read more fiction. Okay. I'm a big fiction reader. I'm reading this book right now called Where the Crawdads Sing. It's about coastal North Carolina. Okay. It's beautiful. Oh my god, the prose is so lyrical and rich and you can feel the sounds of the critters skittering in the marsh sands and Feel the sounds. That's synesthesia. But you can, it's just so rich. And it's, that's, that's the, the good stuff. <laughs> I know being from North Carolina, I know exactly what sound you're talking about. Thank you. It's those little crabs. Yeah. And there's millions of them. They like swarm they on swarm. the sand. Yeah. They yeah. make this little scurrying sound yeah. on the sand. And there's nothing quite like it. Well, this, this writer can write it. Yeah. <laughs> she can. Yeah. So I think that I think 
the psychology of language is that. I think it's the richness of experience. I think it's what kids crave. I think it's, um, it's, it is the generational. It's, it's okay for generations to have their own slang. When I try to say things that I hear the kids say, Oh my God, my kids just laugh and just say, no, please. How how fast do they shoot you down? So fast. Because they shoot me down so I cannot, fast. If I say that's dope. Oh, no. No. Oh, no, no, no. no. I tried to say yeet. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even say yeah. yeet. You do. You like embody. Apparently, yeet is something you do. <laughs> right, you do. So you can't even say, that's how wrong I am. You can't even say Can it. you give me your, how you used yeet uh, to a student? Yeah. My student came to class the other day. This is right, right? My student came to class the other day and um, they were just acting real kind of off. And I was like, what's wrong, student? And the student said, well, I'm hungry. And I said, why didn't yeet yet? But um, check. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, we old folks well, just don't yeah, understand. No, that is not dope. That is not. <laughs> You can't always break into a culture with language, but you can appreciate that there will be something lost in translation. And that appreciation is everything. You know, if you approach it saying, I'm trying, I'm mm-hmm. trying to speak and understand and, 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 fi- and find common ground. We may not meet, but we're, we're, we're trying to bridge the gap. That's everything. The internet. Um, I've always thought is a weird um, area of language where I don't know if it's appropriation or not because everyone has this uh, shared language and it doesn't matter where you heard it from. Hmm. Whereas if you're in New York, you have certain slang. If you're in Detroit, you have different slang. Mm -hmm. The internet Anybody can pick up yeet, apparently, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you don't have to be two miles down the road. You don't have to hear it from your neighbor. Uh-huh. But there's no, I don't know if that's appropriation or not. And I often think that the internet is just has this mentality of remix, just constant remix yeah. of material. And it almost doesn't matter where it came from. Like People it's the great cultural it. equilibrator? Yes. Is that a word? I think what I would say to that is... The difference is, okay, so I was having this conversation with my 19-year-old, who's also very, he's a great writer and he's interested in, certain words in language are policed, but the ideas behind them never can be. Anyway, so I said, Forrest, what is yeet? (laughs) And he told me, and he explained, and he told me what the clip is. He didn't pull up the clip, he could have, I've seen it since, but he told me where it came from. And then he said, Mom, the thing about you is you could have just Googled that, but instead you chose to ask me knowing that it's something that I'm living in. Right. I think that I think that that's like where my heart is. Like I just really wanna know from I really wanna know the language from the people who speak it. Right. So I so even in that situation, I wanted to have a conversation about it. Right. Which is why total immersion, that it's kind of the idea of total immersion. Having the conversation with the person 
for whom the word yeet is relevant right. taught Here, me more right. about the word <laughs> than looking it up. Right. Because that information, to me, kind of is more temporary. Like mm-hmm. you could learn it one day by Googling it, but that information is more fleeting. Yeah. Than... Oh, the rate. Have you ever seen that study? The rate at which we forget things that we Google? It's you stop oh, Googling no. stuff. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm doomed. <laughs> well, um, Emily, thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today and to our listeners. And uh, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? If they want to ask me anything about what we've talked about today. Thank you so much, Brock. Thank sure. you. It was a real pleasure. I appreciate being asked and I loved spending time with you. Um, anybody can email me, Emily in Prague at gmail.com. My tagline says, I may have moved to Texas, but I'm still Emily in Prague at gmail.com. Or uh, I do blog occasionally at bohemilywrites.net. It's Bohemia and Emily. So you get Bohemily. That is brilliant. Bohemilywrites.net. That's great. You can follow me at Summer League HTX. I want to thank Emily Shearer, and I want to invite you to come back next week when I'm going to interview Samantha Craig. She's an English and history teacher at Fusion Academy of the Woodlands, and we're going to talk about cross-curricular reading. We'll see you then.